So literally Mark says, Jesus created the apostles. He made the apostles. He made from what they were not, something that they now are. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. So here is the choosing from among the smaller group. There was the bigger group and the bigger group got a lot smaller with the smaller group. We're not told any information about how many were in that first reduction of numbers. But from that first reduction of numbers, there is now from among them the choosing or the appointing or the setting apart of the apostles capital A. And he appointed, once again, verse 14, he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and they would have authority to cast out demons. So in this section, what we really see here, the strong man, he is here to, to recover his kingdom, so to speak. This kingdom that has been temporarily taken over by the false king, he's here to recover that. In this section, what we see is the reconstituting of the, king, of the king's proper kingdom, this reconstituting of the kingdom. So the picture that we're being shown here is a picture of the kingdom of God's people that have become apostate and the rightful king is returning and he's reconstituting his rightful kingdom because his kingdom of Israel, so to speak, has become apostate. And so he's reconstituting the leadership. We see that, first of all, in just the number 12. That, that's impossible to miss the number 12. Because the number 12, Jesus could have picked eight apostles. He could have, could have picked 14 apostles. He could have picked 25 apostles. But he has 12 apostles. And it's inescapable that that number 12 corresponds to the other number 12 from the Old Covenant, which is the sons of Jacob, the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Jacob. So the 12 tribes of Jacob were the nation of Israel. They were the Jewish people, so to speak. But those 12 tribes have become largely apostate. God's people, God's kingdom still has a remnant of his true people. But as we've said over the last number of weeks, what Mark is showing us is that the through the perversion of the law of God, through the perversion of the word of God, the doctrine of man righteousness, of works righteousness, has completely taken over the religious leadership in Israel. And so this, this works righteousness, that's what, what Jesus was talking about, the whole new wine and the old wineskins, the whole new patch and the old garment. That's what that was talking about. Remember how this new, this gospel of grace cannot fit into not the old law, but the perversion of the old law, the man-centeredness that they have made the law to become, the works-centeredness of the law. The, the, grace, the gospel of grace will not fit into that as those two parables were teaching. It will destroy it. So this kingdom of God that's now become apostate, Jesus is here to reconstitute it. And by choosing these 12 apostles, Jesus is in essence rebuking the leadership of Israel to say that the leadership of Israel is completely off the rails and I'm here to reestablish my kingdom. So he chooses these 12 apostles and not only does he choose them, but it says that he appointed 12 whom he, whom he named apostles. So that word appointed 
sounds to us like Jesus picks among the larger group. Maybe there's a hundred disciples that come up the mountain to him, with him and they sit and they hear this, this sermon of discipleship, this sermon on the mount on, that's all about discipleship. And among these hundreds that are here, a uh, hundred or so to hear the, the sermon on the mount, from that hundred, Jesus is going to pick 12 of those. That's what it almost sounds like when we see that word appointed, because that's what appointed means. Appointed means to take from a larger group and set aside for a specific purpose. But if we look closely to the word that Mark uses here, Mark just uses the word poeo. Now that word literally doesn't mean appoint, it means create. It means make. It's the same word if we were to look at Genesis 1.1 in the Septuagint translation, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the same word that's used to say God created the heavens and the earth. So literally Mark says Jesus created the apostles. He made the apostles. He made from what they were not something that they now are. As we're going to see a little bit later in the, in the text, he's going to take these men who are nothing like apostles and he's going to make them into what they are not. He's creating something from nothing. He's, a cre he's creating apostles from men who are not apostles. So he appointed them. He made them. He created them. And this is the working out of what we see in John chapter 15, when Jesus says to the apostles, you didn't choose me, I chose you. So a little bit later in John 17, Jesus is going to say to the Father, the people that you gave me, I've, I've kept them all. So the larger giving of a people to Jesus, that was the first choosing. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 15 to the apostles. He says to them, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And I appointed you. So this is the actual choosing that Jesus is talking about. So he appoints these 12 or he calls them or he creates them. And we even see this theme carried in into the naming. He says that he also named them apostles. And when we go through the list of names, we're going to see that a few of them are given new names by Jesus. Peter, Simon becomes Peter. James and John, he calls them the sons of thunder. And then even we speculated back when we were talking about Levi, I speculated that Jesus, I believe Jesus renamed Levi to Matthew, which means a gift from God. But there may be even others that were not specifically told that Jesus renamed them, but we are told that Jesus gave, gave some of them new names. But even the larger picture is that we're told that he named them apostles. So that hearkens us back to God's naming of his creation. When we see that God called the day, day and he called the night night he named his creation and we know that in the scriptures the, the the duty of naming the task of naming has to do with authority that the the one in authority always is the one to name the one who's subjected to the authority so god names his creation jesus names his apostles so we see in the even the naming what we are shown here is the picture that jesus is the absolute sovereign creator not only of those who are now his followers but he's the absolute sovereign creator of the apostles. He names them. He calls the disciples. They hear his voice. They obey. He, he prays to the Father later. All those whom you gave me have come to me. He then names the apostles. He creates the apostles and gives them this name. He is shown emphatically as the creator, as the sovereign creator. So they come to him. And now we see from verse 15, He's going to give them authority to cast out demons. We'll come back to that. And now verse 16, here we're going to see the names. He appointed the 12, Simon, who 
to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot. And we'll stop right there for the moment. So we could take some time and we could look at each of those names individually. I don't think that's really the best use of our time to look at them individually. Maybe just call attention to a couple of things that are kind of easy to see there. Uh, We see some of the renaming that takes place. Simon's going to become Peter. uh, Petros, which which comes from Petra Rock. And we see there very clearly that what Jesus is doing is he's not naming Peter according to his character. Because Peter does not have this rock-like, immovable, resolute character. He's just the opposite. But instead, he's naming, naming him according to what he will become. So Peter is named the rock, because not because he is so rock-like, but because he will become rock-like. Or the sons of thunder. We can kind of see the, the relationship there. The James and John, we know from Luke chapter 6, where they want to call down fire upon the Samaritan village that wouldn't believe in Jesus, you know. Uh, hearkening back to Elijah days. So we kind of see that. But then we also see James and John, or James is going to be the first martyr. So we sort of see that sons of thunder, that impetuousness, that, that refusal to be bridled kind of thing. James is going to be the first one who will refuse to cow down to the Roman authorities and he's going to preach the gospel anyway. And he's going to be the first one martyred. John, of course, he's going to write the Revelation. Now, oftentimes we think about John as sort of this really gentle disciple of love. You know, the epistles of John are very gentle, but the apocalypse is not so gentle. So, so these, this is James and John. They're the sons of thunder. They're, they are the, the unbridled ones, so to speak. And we can kind of see some other things there. But the last thing to draw attention to before we go to the 12th name would be Simon the Zealot. And just to kind of think for a moment about the, the interplay that would have existed between Simon the Zealot And say, for example, Matthew. Simon is called Simon the Zealot because he is associated with a group of people who will become a political party in a couple of decades, a couple of decades after Jesus' death, a political party that will be known as the Zealots. And the Zealots were known for their pro-Israel stance. In fact, their violent pro-Israel stance. They They were known to be assassins and terrorists, that kind of thing. Simon is associated with that group that will eventually become the zealot. So he's called Simon the zealot here. So we, so we take this to be somebody who's very, very pro-Israel, even to the point of embracing violence. Now, we put that together with this man, Matthew, the tax collector. And it doesn't take a whole lot for us to imagine just a very thorny relationship there, apart from the gospel. Two people who were more diametrically opposed, it would be hard to imagine them being together than Matthew the tax collector and Simon the pro-Israel zealot. So imagine Simon the zealot and Matthew the former tax collector. They're going to sleep in close proximity to one another. They're going to share a table together. They are going to be an example for us of just what the gospel can bring together of how the gospel transcends all cultural boundaries. It transcends all human divisions, and it brings together those who never would have been brought together otherwise. So that's a little bit about Simon the Zealot and Matthew. And again, we could dig more deeply into a lot of those names, or all those names if you wanted. But just suffice to say that of those 12 names, here's the, the list of 12 apostles. 
only four of them are going to be mentioned ever again in Mark's gospel. Simon, James, and John, and of course, number 12, Judas. Other than those four, the other eight, Mark will never mention them again, which is interesting. These 12 apostles, seven of them, their name is only mentioned one time. Matthew is only mentioned one time and he's mentioned again elsewhere as Levi. But then eight of the apostles are only mentioned right here in all of Mark's gospel. So now let's just turn our attention finally to the final number 12, the most problematic apostle, verse 19, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. So Judas Iscariot, we all are quite familiar with that name. Judas Iscariot, because that's a name that's just emblazoned upon the Christian conscience as the one who was the betrayer of our Lord. So we're told that Judas the betrayer is, is, the, is among the 12 who were chosen. On all the lists of the apostles, he's always last. He's always the 12th one. And he's always designated as the betrayer. The, the apostles, the gospel writers, by the way, as just sort of a side note, the gospel writers are far harsher towards Judas than Jesus ever is. That's just something to kind of ponder. Jesus is never as harsh to Judas as the writers of the gospel will be. So here is Judas called the betrayer, the one who would betray him. So the question really looms large. Why would Jesus choose Judas? We reject outright the concept that Jesus didn't know that Judas would betray him. We, re we reject that. Jesus not only knew he would be betrayed, he knew he would be betrayed by one of his own and he knew it would be Judas. And so Jesus didn't choose Judas hoping that he would be faithful, like he hoped the other 11 would be faithful. He chose Judas knowing. So what are we to make of this? This extremely problematic and even, should I say, embarrassing choice by our master to choose out of only 12. He had hundreds to choose from, and of the 12 he picked, one of them was a betrayer. So one of the things that this shows us very clearly is, once again, I love pointing this out, the authenticity of the true Gospels. Because if this were a man-written Gospel, there is no way that we would have included such an embarrassing detail about our master. If people put this together, if people made this up, that would have absolutely been washed out of the story. But it's here. All the Gospels have it. And so clearly this is another mark of the authenticity of the divine nature. God is not embarrassed that Jesus chose a betrayer. He intended to choose a betrayer. So that's the first thing that we see. Another thing that I want to point out just real quickly is, is Jesus's association with Judas, or, or should I say the other way around, Judas's close association with Jesus. And how Judas stands for us as a stark reminder that close association with Jesus is not necessarily proof of grace. Close association with Jesus does not necessarily say that we are under the grace, the salvific grace of God. To be closely associated with Jesus or in our day to be closely associated with His people in no way declares that we are necessarily one of God's. Judas was closely associated with Jesus 
Judas was one of the 12 the entire time. The 12 were chosen by Jesus, we're told in Acts chapter 1, because they were from, with Jesus from the start. So J Judas wasn't a latecomer. He was here from the start, and he was there until the end. So this close association with Jesus, oftentimes, you know, we, we, can, we can look at this the other way around, and we can know that, that those who want no association with God's people it's really problematic to think of one who wants nothing to do with God's people as being among God's people. It's hard to imagine one who loves Jesus and does not want any association with his bride. But you can't really think of it the other way around because there are many tares that have close association with the people of God and that in no way is necessarily evidence of salvation. The other thing that we see is, in addition to that, not only close association with Jesus, but doing mighty things in Jesus' name is not necessarily proof of any salvation. As Jesus will say to those who come to Him and say, didn't we do many mighty great things in Your name? I never knew You. Depart from Me. So Judas will do many mighty things in Jesus' name. How do we know that? Well, we know from this passage that they're given the authority, we'll get here in just a minute, the authority to preach and the authority to cast out demons. Later, in chapter 8, as the 12 are going to be finally sent out, they're going to be given more authority to heal the sick. And so these, these disciples, these, these apostles, are going to be sent out in twos to preach and to cast out demons and to heal. Never once is there a shred of evidence that any of the disciples, or any of the apostles, I should say, suspected Judas was the betrayer. Remember when Jesus says, one of you will betray me? Not one of them said, I knew it. Judas never did cast out any demons. Did you see Judas try to cast it? Did you see him? He couldn't cast out demons. Remember that time we were casting out demons and Judas tried and he couldn't do it? Or Judas, he never was able to heal anybody. All the rest of us, we were healing. Not Judas, though. Or did you ever hear Judas preach? He, just, he was not a very powerful preacher. I knew it was him. There's not a shred of evidence that any of the apostles suspected him in any way, which tells us very clearly that he did everything they did. He preached powerfully. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. No one suspected a thing. So once again, this shows us that we can even do great things for the kingdom of God from an earthly perspective. And that is not necessarily proof of regeneration. So let's look just a little bit more closely into this character, Judas. Verse 19 again, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Judas Iscariot is a very interesting character for us. So we think about this name Judas. It, what a lot of scholars point to is they point to Judas as being chosen by Jesus for the purpose of representing all the Jewish people. Now, that might be new. That's not something that we necessarily hear every day. But a lot of biblical scholars think that Judas was Jesus' choice as sort of a stand-in for all of the Jews. The first thing that we see here is we see something about his name, the name Judas, if we were to look at this, it's in your notes here. But in, in, the, uh, in the Greek, uh, Judas's name is Judas, whereas the name of Jew is Judas. 
You hear how close those are, those two are? Judas, Judeas. And so it's really only a half of a syllable difference. So his name really is almost indicative of the people who will betray him. Furthermore, Judas is the only Judean Jew among the 12 disciples. All other 11 disciples or apostles are Galilean Jews. Judas is the only Judean Jew. He comes, we believe, from a, a, a town called Kiriath, which would be in the southern part of Judah near the land of Edom. So he's the only Judean Jew. Now, the Judean Jews were known as sort of the highbrow Jews. The Galilean Jews, they, they were sort of the stepchild. They were the ones who were kind of, well, I guess they're Jews, but, but we, the Judean Jews, we are the real Jews. This is where Jerusalem is. This is where the land of Judah, this is the land that stayed faithful to God in the Old Testament, or more so than the Northern Kingdom did. So the Judean Jews, the Southern Jews, they're sort of the highbrow. They're sort of the ones who think of themselves as the real Jews, the true Jews. And Judas is the only one among them. And then his name itself is so close to the very name of the people. So many people think of that and they speculate. Jesus chose him as a representative of all of the people who will betray him. And who betrayed him? His own. He came unto his own and his own knew him not. And his own were the ones who gave him over to the Gentiles. So that sort of has some traction with me. I don't know if it has a lot of traction with you, but it has some traction with me to, to think of Jesus choosing the one whom, whom will be literally the symbolic stand-in for all of the people who will reject him, and that's the one who will betray him. And furthermore, we see some more similarities with this man, Judas, because if we think through the story, we know how Judas betrays Jesus, and after betraying Jesus... He destroys himself. He kills himself. So also after Israel betrayed Jesus, they also destroyed themselves within about three decades through their foolish resistance to Rome. And that eventually ended up in their total destruction. Or we think of, of uh, a Judas, Judas who was the trusted keeper of the money. Remember how Judas was the trusted keeper of the money? so also were the Jews the trusted keeper of God's treasure, the Scriptures. And there's, there's other parallels that we see. There's, there's many parallels that say to us, I think there's something to this, that Jesus is choosing Judas as the symbolic stand-in for the very people who would betray Him. And Jesus wanted to take this man as though symbolically taking all of His people into His confidence into his close association, to share table with him, to break bread with him, to sleep with him, to walk with him, to do all these things with him, and then yet to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. And I think this is really what Judas is pointing us to. So Jesus chooses Judas for Judas to come alongside as this betrayer, this betrayer from close, from close among him. The word that he betrayed him, the word betray there is the paradidomai, it has the, the prefix of para, which means alongside. Didomai means to turn over or to give over. Para means alongside. We use that same sort of prefix for like a, a paramedic alongside a doctor or paralegal alongside a lawyer or paramilitary. So Judas betrayed him. Paradidomai alongside of him gave him over, betrayed him from within. 
one of his own gave him over. In fulfillment of the scriptures, we think of Psalm 41, one who breaks my bread with me and eats at the table with me, he will be the one who turns me over. Or as Jesus will say to Judas, when Judas comes there to betray him with the kiss, he will say in Matthew 26, friend, friend, what are you doing? 